The Reluctant Conformist A book by Richard Cowley Chapter 8 The Aficionado A quote relevant to Chapter 8 from Pablo Picasso, 1881 to 1973 I am always doing what I cannot do in order that I may learn how to do it. The epidemic was localised. French law and officious bureaucrats made sure of that. The infection was lawfully isolated according to the dictates of Appellation de Origin Contrôle, AOC, Controlled Designation of Origin. Many of the buildings in the tight-knit rural Basque township of Espillette appeared to be suffering from a nasty red rash on their outer walls. But as is often the case, all was not what it seemed. The buildings weren't covered in lumpy blight, but long strings of the capsicum genus, members of the deadly nightshade family. The colourful fruit were there to dry in the sun, whilst advertising the local highly protected industry. The famous espillette red chilli peppers. Basque cuisine would be indistinguishable from other regional foodstuffs if not for the inclusion of the prized local ingredient. Clive and Magnus arrived at Espillette on the second day of their walk through France. They'd covered 40 kilometres of the 250-kilometre trek and were happily getting into the swing of things. There's always a lot to learn at the beginning of a long-distance trek. One lesson they'd forgotten, however, was always to treat certain native knowledge with a large pinch of salt. They'd been lost only once, and that was thanks to specific directions given from a local motorist who'd screeched his cart to a halt to give them assistance they didn't need. The map they were consulting showed perfectly well which way to go. Foolishly, they took the Frenchman's advice, and suffered an hour of confused anxiety, wondering where on earth they were. Being lost undermined their confidence in their navigational abilities, and tended to erode the beneficial effects of life on the open road. The disgruntled trekkers were eventually rescued when they waved down the only vehicle they met on the empty back road. Their saviours were greatly amused at the antics of the agitated foreigners who tried to explain their predicament by repeatedly exclaiming, Espelette! Espelette! through the driver's window. After a great deal of merriment, the Basque mother and son understood their plight and loaded the hikers into the back of their battered van amongst a stack of paint drums and stained rags. The vehicle clattered and snaked around country lanes until they were dropped off at a crossroads where a wooden signpost finger had the welcome name Espillette carved into it. Laughing wildly, their rescuers slammed the battered Citroen into gear and trundled off, waving goodbye and shouting, Bon chance to the disoriented Anglo-Saxon Australians. The Espelette Hotel was a traditionally rustic Basque building, with its interior recently refurbished in a starkly restrained fashion. The middle-aged landlady was stylish and shapely, but it was her mannerisms that distinguished her from all the other hoteliers they met along the way. She was all affectation and flowing hand gestures, nothing hard-edged, her clothes were figure-hugging, but oddly tweedy. Even with her elaborate, sybil faulty style bouffant hair, she definitely wore the trousers in that hotel. And yet, in a teasingly corseted way, she was vibratingly sexy. 
she preceded them up the stairs to their room, which, much to their surprise, was not a twin share, but contained a double bed. This can't be right, Clive spluttered uncertainly. It's not, Magnus stated, producing the booking slip. Here's confirmation of our room's booking, and it's for a twin share, not a double. Oh, exclaimed the landlady, in a flurry of extravagant hand-fluttering, head-wobbling, eyelid-widening, and lip-pursing gestures. We have all sorts here, she apologised, with her head on one side, play-acting contrition, whilst her eyes twinkled with impish glee. How was I to know? She put matters right, allocating better rooms than they had booked, two single rooms for the price of a twin share. Thank goodness there'd be no bed sharing that night, and happily red-faced embarrassment was avoided all round. That evening her desire to spook the hotel's cuisine and confirm her close personal control of everything in the dining room was plain to see. Very much the maitre d'hôtel, she arrived three steps behind their main course, then proceeded to enlighten the diners in the bare essentials of French cuisine, whilst the neglected food cooled. Here we have the French bean, here the French green pea, ici le carotte, and voilà, le duckling foot, she explained, gesturing lovingly to each item of food with the extravagant flourish of a scantily clad conjurer's assistant distracting the onlooker from the deception taking place before their very eyes. The fair reflected the dining room's decor, minimalist and meagre. When she waved across the pea, she got it just right. There was only a single limp snow pea on the plate, although to be fair, there was a sprinkling of beans. It wasn't only Magnus and Clive who were somewhat disappointed by the size of their meal. A large, three-generation family party sitting at the next table made their dissatisfaction absolutely clear. The elderly patriarch of the group went to great animated lengths to express his displeasure at the measly size of the meal. Only a single word, microscopic, was necessary to gauge his meaning. It would seem it's not just the dyed-in-the-wool roast beef and Yorkshire pudding Britons who find nouvelle cuisine wanting. Some Frenchmen are inclined to agree. Espelette remained firmly ingrained in Magnus's memory, not for the red chili pepper bejeweled houses, nor the captivating mannerisms of their landlady, nor even for the tedium of wasting an hour setting off to walk eastwards instead of westwards when leaving town. What captivated his attention, and remained very active in his psyche, resulted from the casual diversion when looking for the postbox on the morning of their departure. It must have been market day, for the shopping mall was busy and lined with inviting street stalls selling local produce, mainly red chili peppers in every guise imaginable, supplemented by the lesser-known local delicacy of sheep's cheese. The shops had opened early to attract the passing trade, which, even before breakfast, was bustling. La Poste, s'il vous plaît, monsieur, Magnus asked the shopkeeper across from the hotel. Ici, he replied cheerfully, pointing to the yellow postbox. On that cool, bright morning, the convivial atmosphere amongst the early morning shoppers and traders was wonderfully infectious. Magnus posted the letters before ambling back to the shop, which offered irresistible browsing, being brimful of bric-a-brac and antiques. He had no intention of buying anything, 
as his backpack was already heavy enough and over 200 kilometers of rugged tramping still lay ahead. At the back of the shop, on a chair, alongside a stack of dusty furniture and a red rusty two-meter-tall cast-iron Jesus, a grubby, heavily glazed ceramic plate caught Magnus's eye. Once in his hands, he knew instantly what he was holding. He was exhilarated by the thrill of discovery. Everything about the find screamed of a legendary artist's wizardry. The plate depicted a medieval knight armed with a halbert, clad in a plumed golden helmet with matching tunic, standing before a backward-facing bottle-green horse, sporting a wildly streaming tail. The steed's halter, bridle, and cloak were festooned with exotic bejeweled motifs. Both knight and mount were exquisitely executed and decorated with a flourish of white, gold, chocolate, and lime-green studs and amulets, contrasting against a luminous blue ground. A self-assured display of bold brushwork perfectly captured the knight's demeanor to radiate a gritty individuality. The fluent execution of the brilliantly conceived work and its dazzling chromatic imagery reflected the gifts of a playful artistic genius. Magnus's heart pounded, his hands trembled, he could hardly contain himself. What a find! What a souvenir! What luck! What is your best price for the plate? he asked the dealer, trying desperately to conceal the depth of his interest. The antique trader reviewed a ledger before stating, In Beiritz I pay one hundred euro. You have for one thirty. Magnus kept his cool, and the price was agreed, at a good discount from the original one hundred and eighty euro price tag. And that's the unlikely and unimaginable sequence of events that led to him becoming the owner of a superb thirty-three centimetre diameter earthenware plate, which he believed exhibited the familiar characteristics of his favourite artist and the twentieth-century cultural giant. One Pablo Picasso. If, as Magnus believed, the plate was an original Picasso, neither unique, nor an addition, nor a fake piece, and if both the provenance and authorship could be established with certainty, then the plate would be worth a considerable sum. If not, his Picasso would remain a treasured memento, one which, in years to come, would certainly not find a place on a garage sale table as is the fate of many souvenirs. No matter how these thoughts excited his overwrought brain, his immediate concern was of a more pressing and mundane nature, how to carry a large and fragile treasure along the rough tracks of the Pyrenees foothills without breakage. What do you think of this, Clive? he gloated, holding the plate protectively. Where'd you get it and what's it for? Clive asked uncertainly. Won't it be awkward to carry? Magnus relived the story over breakfast. It was an agitated and rambling account, as his entire emotional and nervous system was alive with the thrilling pleasure of discovering so unique a treasure. Fortunately, the plate just fitted inside the neck of his backpack, allowing spare clothes and wet weather gear to be employed as support and protection against chance accidents if he stumbled or fell along the way. A nearly complete copy of a discarded Sunday Times provided additional packaging, with the plate padded inside the newspaper and protected amongst his clothes in the strap-tight backpack. Magnus felt confident that it was well cushioned against accidents. 
Magnus was well aware that the plate was not a typical Picasso ceramic, as the detailed finish, rich coloration, and assured modelling reflected the artist's late painting style rather than that of his customary spare ceramic motif. Picasso mystified those who revere conformity by, repeatedly and unexpectedly, throughout his long and prolific artistic life, producing something atypical, a total revolution in art, such as cubism, later collage, or creating a new and liberating painting style. Magnus believed the plate to be one of those jus d'esprit works Picasso fashioned over more than twenty years, producing a continuous stream of unconventional ceramic works. He was aware of the rare privilege it was to be walking with a Picasso stashed in his backpack, but with his wonderful find safely shielded between his shoulder blades, he didn't feel as though he was actually walking, but floating several feet off the ground. Even years later, he still hadn't got over the thrill of discovery and the delight in owning a piece of the great man's work. The treasure on his back wasn't some sort of acolyte's precious relic, like Picasso's fingernail parings or hair clippings, which the artist was always keen to secure in case they were purloined for shamanic mischief, something he was keen to avoid. What Magnus was keeping close was a prize he believed had the magician's fingerprints all over it. However, the hard part lay ahead, and that was to prove its creator was indeed the person that his senses, heart, intuition, response, and scholarship supposed it to be. For the remainder of the trek, he was alert to the vulnerability of the fragile object on his back, although the extra care taken on slippery or treacherous terrain didn't slow them down or create any difficulties. During their daily stopovers, however, Magnus became somewhat paranoid about the plate being stolen while he and Clive were out on the town, hitting the tapas bars. All concerns were ill-founded. Even airport security procedures and the flights back to the Isle of Man were incident-free, and he returned there with the plate in one piece and chip-free.